Hey there, welcome to June. We're smack dab in the middle of the year. The sun is out, the days are long, and we've got a collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. Our show today is about being proud. John Ballinger and Double Batch Daddy are here to kick off the summer in song. I'll read you a short story about the joys and pains of becoming a father. Our Rhythms of Life segment features interviews with four fascinating folks in their mid-twenties. And later on, I'll share some thoughts about how I learned to be a proud papa. So, here we are. To quote ELO, the sun is shining in the sky, there ain't a cloud in sight. Here in L.A., we haven't seen the sun since mid-May, so I'm going to keep this brief so I can get out and enjoy it. Sunrise in Los Angeles came at 5.41 this morning, and it sets at 8.06 this evening. We're just a couple days away from the longest day of the year, and I hope you'll get outside to celebrate it with something cooked over a fire. Burgers, may they be of the beef or mushroom variety. Pizza on the grill is great if you can control the heat. And if that isn't an apt metaphor for what summer is all about, I don't know what is. Summer is also the sweet and sticky time of year to stand over the sink and navigate your way through a peach, plum, apricot, or melon. And if there's anything more satisfying or refreshing than a watermelon margarita on a Sunday afternoon, I'd be glad to hear it, but it'll take a bit to convince me. Here's the recipe. Two or three parts tequila to one part triple sec. One part lime juice, watermelon juice to taste. Watermelon juice is easily made by cutting the rinds off a watermelon, throwing the meat in the blender, and straining it into a pitcher. Pour it over ice, or if you want to get fancy, freeze the watermelon in cubes and mix them up in the blender with the liquid ingredients plus a little extra ice. You're welcome. June is the month where we celebrate grads and dads, the end of slavery, and, if the calendar is to be believed, the American flag. I loved the American flag as a kid, and it's not that I've grown to hate it or anything. It's just that it was the only thing I felt comfortable drawing. I had a decent handle on squares, stars, and stripes. Plus, it never really hurt to play the Patriot card, even in art class. Thirteen stripes to represent the thirteen original colonies and a star for each state in the Union. June is also Pride Month, wherein we hoist another flag with much deeper significance. The rainbow flag points to the truth that what may appear at first glance to be a simple beam of white light is actually a spectrum of color that moves fluidly from red to purple, traveling through orange, yellow, green, and blue to get there. And if we look really closely, we can see that the spectrum expands to shades we never knew existed because we don't have eyes that can see the infrared or ultraviolet components that make up a beam of light. The invitation to experience the world as a spectrum is probably the most profound lesson I've learned in my life. When I teach actors or interview people for this podcast, I focus on four emotional states— happy, sad, angry, and afraid. But I always point out that each emotion is its own spectrum where we might feel a million different things from pleased to ecstatic, bummed to grief-stricken, miffed to enraged, wary to terrorized. The profound beauty of the rainbow 
is that each band flows into each other to make up the whole. They aren't like the stripes on our flags, where one is clearly separated from the other. The rainbow holds within its glorious beauty the full range of visible and invisible light. And the rainbow invites us to recognize that unity in diversity is a fundamental truth of our existence. But I promised I'd keep this brief. Here's a song.
Last season on this podcast, I always found a way to include the phrase, if the year were a day, to demonstrate the way each day mirrors the patterns of a year. It starts in darkness, it grows brighter, then dimmer, and ultimately heads back into darkness and the cycle begins again. Same with a year. Same with a lifetime. All year, I've had the joy and privilege to interview folks at various stages of life. I ask the same questions every time. What's on your mind? What's your favorite meal? What makes you happy, sad, angry, and afraid? What's your favorite memory? And what do you hope for the future? We started with five-year-olds, and this month, we're talking to folks in their mid-twenties. Some of them just graduated from college, some are established in their early careers, and all of them are working to unlock the combination that will allow them to have a life that's rewarding and fulfilling. It's my great pleasure to introduce you to these four young adults as we travel through the seasons of life. I'm Anjali, age 23. My name is Gerson, and I'm turning 23. My name's Brielle, and I am 26 years old. Hello there. My name is Milo. I am 24 years old. Some of the things I have on my mind is money a lot of the time, but also like in conjunction with that, because I'm an actor, it's like creative fulfillments um, and like making compromises in my head of what are the projects I'm going to take for money and what are the projects I'm going to take because I really, really like them. Pre-pandemic, my goals were like heavily like get comfortable in a good career that makes you happy. Once that was met, I wanted to pay off college as fast as possible. And so I really grinded. I was working two full-time jobs, a freelance job, and pet sitting on the side. Now we're here. I want to start branching out and start trying to get a house one day. That's been really on my mind is just trying to get to that point. (laughs) On the daily right now, I'm definitely thinking about like self-improvement. Not to get too like dramatic really fast, but literally um, all that's on my mind is like the whole idea that I'm an adult now, and no one's coming to save me. I gotta save myself. So whatever I want, it's really about creating a structure, creating a plan, and working on it. Falling off of it and learning from it with love. These last couple of weeks have kind of been a whirlwind in my life. Um, I I was I was experiencing a bit of depression, and I was like, you know what? Let me let me reclaim. Let me reclaim my life. And I started doing yoga. I went to an herbalist. I would start taking vitamins. And then um, I'm in a show right now. And on opening night, we, we all went out. I had two drinks. I had a shot of tequila and, and, and one beer. And then five hours later, um, it's time to go home. It's like three in the morning. And I see somebody driving with their lights off in my blind spot. And I'm like, oh, let me not change lanes right now. I was about to change lanes, but I just saw them. So I, changed, I moved back. And it was a cop. He, he comes up to the window and he's like, you know, you almost ran us off the road, right? I was like, officer, you were driving with your lights off, but I'm so, I'm very sorry. It's three in the morning. I'm exhausted and I I just want to get home. And he was like, okay, step out of the car. And with pumps, with high heels on, I pass his walking test. I pass all his, his, his drunken tests, except the breathalyzer. My blood alcohol content was 0.1 and the legal limit in California is 0.08. I got arrested. (laughs) I got arrested. (laughs) I spent a night in jail. A DUI is like not something that's 
gonna leave my record easily so it's just gonna be a long process and that's kind of what's been on my mind lately there's been so many good meals honestly one of the ones that like first comes to my mind which i think would be the best is there's this little place in van nuys called lido's pizza being from chicago i like hold pizza pretty high they have amazing pizza but like the best sourdough rolls that they serve at the beginning that are just like little pillows that melt in your mouth they're so warm and then the best is they hand like make your pasta that day the best is their linguine like alfredo it is just like so creamy and buttery cheesy i just i slurp those down (laughs) Mm, i love sushi it feels like i'm eating art there was one day i decided i was just gonna like make breakfast like really slowly and I just made, like, a bowl of, like, all sorts of things that I could think of that were, like, nutritious. And it felt like such a blessing to be able to, like, put together something that was good for me. I mean, like, Brussels sprouts and, like, um, like chorizo and eggs. And then, like, uh, I put, like, pickled red onion on there, beans and spinach. And then I also got, like, almonds in there. And I don't know, it, it was... It felt like a blessing to be able to put something like that together, feel healthy and fulfilled. Well, actually, one of my best meal experiences was my birthday when um, my friends Vice and Lilia took me out to a Michelin star restaurant. It's actually, I think, the only queer black owned Michelin star restaurant in the Bay Area. It was like a 12 course tasting meal and it had like a wine pairing. And I don't even know if I can pronounce all the things that I ate, but it was just really, really lovely. favorite meal oh i'll pick something maybe sentimental probably like the last meal that my grandma ever made me uh she she was living with us with my family for a long while um and she would make it every like uh saturday morning um it it was it wasn't anything crazy uh puri which is like this like fluffy doughy thing that you dip in like a potato curry and you eat it for breakfast and it was great um but I like have like random cravings of that all the time it was was just so good I most appreciate being able to cultivate loving and um intimate friendships with the people around me um you know making good memories with those people um making art with those people like one of my favorite things to do is um yeah create with with people I love we make like art babies and I cherish them what makes me happy? Well, I think I discovered not that long ago for me, one of those things is acting. And I didn't, I wasn't a performer as a kid. Um, I didn't do it in middle school or high school, nothing like that. Um, I only started acting later in college and I very quickly fell in love with it. The precursors to that was I always loved writing and storytelling. And the precursor to all that is I think people who enjoy those things uh, feel a lot of importance in like connections and relationships and understanding people. So one of the things that makes me happy naturally are like the people in my life and the people in my life constantly bring like excitement and interest to me. And that, you know, keeps me happy. I love audio so much. I just knew I wanted to live and breathe audio every day. And the fact that I get to do that, I like 
always am so excited to go to work and especially like I'm a video gamer so it's kind of nice that my work is heavily involved in that so it's nice to just be in my element always community I'd say um I think that like every time I open up and I allow myself to be a little vulnerable and get past any sort of like fear of judgment I make friends I think that's what makes me the most happy is having people to talk to and if I don't have anybody at the time just talk to somebody new you know taking the risk of making a friend before I became an actor and like I was on a very very different path I'm kind of like the classic very stereotypical like immigrant kid story and so there was a lot of like wanting to live up to the reason my parents like worked very hard and like lost so much and struggled to come here to give me these certain opportunities and I think there was a lot of grief in a not measuring up to that and b not wanting that and feeling guilty for not wanting that that like internal struggle would left me sad a couple years ago like my my grandpa passed away and he was like my third parent in my household it makes me sad sometimes thinking about him and like the things that i can't technically share with him now that he's gone that definitely makes me a little sad fronts like um performative actions i think that a lot of people try to I don't know, maybe they're afraid of, like, others knowing that they don't have all their shit together. It makes me sad, truly, like, when I see people that, like, don't know how to, like, feel their genuine self, and you can kind of see it. They're not really in touch with what they're feeling in the moment, or maybe they're not open to sharing it, but I'd say it makes me sad, I guess, because, like, I've just seen a lot of people where, like, I know that there's more beyond what they're expressing to others. My parents are divorced. My dad is Puerto Rican, but I, I didn't grow up with him. Um, I grew up with my mom's side of the family, which is all Egyptian. I'm first generation Americans. So they were immigrants and they came from a very different background. So there was a lot of like cultural clashes growing up. Also, I'm queer and they're very Orthodox Christian. And so that was another clash. And even to this day, we're I'm still not where I would like to be. You know, we don't really have a great relationship. It's It's cordial and we, you know, we're able to sit around a table together for a total of 45 minutes before it gets tense but it's getting there but that's something that makes me sad and I I hope it improves in the future that's where I think a lot of sadness comes from is like just looking at the big question mark and not knowing what to do uh I definitely lack patience I am the most impatient person I hate being late to things also I feel like I get angry when it comes to, say you're like training somebody and they're just not getting it. I'm the worst teacher. <laughs> I shouldn't be a professional teacher because I, I lack the patience and understanding. A lot of the legislation and a lot of the um, you know, rhetoric coming out about uh, queer folks in the States right now is very concerning. Uh, everything that went down with Roe v. Wade last year, there's just a lot to be angry about and i want to say motivated about um but mainly angry about healthcare the fact that we don't really have a strong healthcare system and we're one of the most unhealthy populations in the world despite being one of the leading countries in the world education why are we one of the only places that doesn't really teach a second language oh and racism racism is like america was founded on 
genocide and and slavery and racism is just a part of what it means to be american it's just a part it's embedded in the fabric of our society and and of course the same people who suffer time and time again suffer in the system which are you know poor black and brown folk i think a lot of it stems from or at least is exacerbated by capitalism um and it makes me very very angry selfish actions because i think that if you have the means to help another person and you refuse to in order to only help yourself that just like pisses me off and i see a lot like because i think that we're all like equals and whenever i see somebody not treated as an equal that pisses me off i'm 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 happy that i stay angry because i think that for me at least feels like a better alternative to getting beaten down and accepting it one thing i'm afraid of if i had to pick one is not living life to its fullest capacity or um not meeting my full potential i don't know that i want to call it a fear it's more like a motivating thing for me it's like because i don't want that i choose to make every day count because i'm so scared of that if i'm being really honest failure the constant fear in the back of my head when like what gives me like all this anxiety all the time is like what if i fail what if i like don't accomplish this thing but I've been learning to just kind of like the resolution today is to just kind of like take it one step at a time and treat myself with kindness that it's okay to not have everything figured out. And if I'm in the process of figuring something out, that's not necessarily a failure. That's working on it. Inflation. <laughs> Money is always like, you know, the goal is always get the house. And while things are just like skyrocketing prices like rent goes up gas goes up it just starts adding up and then it just freaks you out i am afraid of probably all of the classic things you know failure um making the total wrong bet um i've always felt a little chip on my shoulder to prove myself to the world in the community i grew up with a lot of people would expect i'd be married by now at 23 and like having kids so doing things my own way, I feel like I have a little chip on my shoulder to be, like prove the world wrong and then I can do it and still be successful, but more importantly, happy and not have it be like detrimental to my life. And I guess I kind of split my time spiraling about that or split my time completely ignoring that's even happening and just pushing through. Not to be meta about it, but I think I'm scared of fear. <laughs> I'm scared of being debilitated to a point where I don't do things that are scary even if they would be good for me i think my favorite memory is probably when i first got my first apartment out here i had never had a place to like call my own so it was just really nice to drive across the states with my mom she helped me so much with decorating the apartment making it feel like a home and then we moved my dog out from there which was also just like such a nice thing but the best was like getting on that FaceTime call with my grandpa to show him everything like look at where I've gotten and see how like proud he was of me he's great there was this time I had been feeling this um like rage inside that like I didn't really know how to express and eventually just kind of like occurred to me like almost just like instinctually like I need to run (laughs) <laughs> it was like very this, this like primal anger that was inside of me just from like stress and stuff um and then when i made the decision got on the treadmill i ran for two hours sprinting but then slowing down and then like you know just pacing myself and 
I just remember after, you know, running for two hours, falling to the floor in exhaustion. And for the first time in my life, I understood why sometimes you see people in movies like at their wits end and then they're just like laughing and crying at the same time because I was collapsed on the floor laughing and crying at the same time. And I felt mental clarity like for the first time in a while. I don't know if I have a favorite memory, but um, a memory that I like to tell people um, just because I think it's funny is it was the result of a little cultural difference because um, I went to school in India for a little while. I was living with my grandparents at the time. I was like six years old. I was in the first grade. Um, and I remember uh, one of my two teeth were loose. Uh, and it, it fell out in the middle of class and I was so excited and like, I knew about the tooth fairy. I was very excited. I was ready and I, and my tooth fell out. I picked it up. It was still bloody. I ran up to the teacher's desk and was like, look at what happened. Um, and she plucked it from my hand, went outside and she threw it into the sand and I was heartbroken. I was like, why would you do this to me? I just lost out on like five bucks. And she had no idea what I was talking about. Probably the most transformative memory I've ever had is my trip to Cuba. I, I went there in November and I went there on a research trip to, to walk the streets of Cuba and to feel entirely safe. And juxtaposing that with my experience in Oakland, being surrounded by police. I remember one of the days that I was there, we were visiting a polyclinic. And one of the people who was on the tour with us, an American citizen, um, woke up with pain in his eye. And, you know, we, we just happened to be going to the polyclinic. So we go, we're learning about the healthcare system. And they're like, hey, you know, one of our tour people is struggling with eye stuff. And so they were like, vamos, let's bring you into the room. So they like immediately see him. They do some tests. They prescribe him some medication. He takes the medication. He's feeling good within a, a few hours. And it was all so fast and so free and so easy. My, my trip to Cuba is my favorite memory because it changed my life and my perspective on life. I really hope to travel more. I I really hope to go start exploring more places. I really hope to start taking off in some of my hobbies that I do. Um, I hope to have more gatherings, see people in public, um, play more games, see more movies, go out. Definitely more exploring. In a general, broad sense, I hope that we as a human civilization can get it together. I hope that we get over our egos and our greed in order to, you know, serve a, the bigger picture, which is, you know, the happy health and wellness of everyone. You know, we're not free until everyone's free. Um, for myself, I, I personally am at war with myself a lot of the time, and I, I wish for inner peace. I'm really dedicated right now to living a peaceful life. And I'm noticing that a lot of people around me are kind of making those same decisions right now too. Like they're, we all kind of like branch off into like our little palaces of solitude and then come find each other once we're ready. I want to share that energy with more people. In a very broad sense, my hopes for the future are, well, for the world, things to look up um, for us to all talk a little bit more openly, try to understand each other and do our best to help those around us. But personally, on a very selfish note, um, I'd like to be happy and comfortable and satisfied with what I'm doing in life. I feel like I come off more well-adjusted than I actually am. 
You can take everything I say as like, I feel this in theory. Whether or not on the day-to-day, <laughs> I, I completely reflect this as something else. I am so grateful for the honesty and bravery of these amazing young people. Anjali is from Virginia. Brielle is from Chicago. Milo lives in Oakland. And Gerson is from Southern California. My paternal instinct in my increasingly advanced age wants to somehow magically impart the knowledge that every path is a good path and that the key is to enjoy the journey wherever it takes you. But I'm not so old that I've forgotten the joys and challenges of learning who you are and who you want to be. So I'll just say thanks to all of you for sharing this stage of the journey with us. Next month, we'll talk to folks in early middle age about what they're thinking and feeling as we continue our journey through the seasons of life. The Rhythm of the Seasons is a true labor of love. I spend a lot of time laboring to bring these podcasts to you, and I do love it. Thanks to your generous donations, we've been able to pay the bills for our website, logo, and even share a tiny little bit of money with the folks who contribute their time and talents to make this podcast what it is. Namely, a chance to check in with the world as it moves through its endless cycle of birth, growth, withering, death, and new life. If you like what you hear, if you take something away from this podcast, an idea, a song, or just a laugh, we invite you to join Hope from Hollywood, John from Celebration, Florida, Shadow from Fairlawn, Ohio, and Tim and Barbara, my parents, from Sacramento, by making a donation to the cause. It's easy. Just head to livefromtheloungepodcast.com. That's livefromtheloungepodcast.com and hit the donate button. Every dollar you share with us goes right back into the creation of this podcast. Thanks in advance for your generosity. It was another month of scouring for short stories. Last month, I searched for stories of motherhood. This month, I wanted to address fatherhood. And I found a lot of interesting contenders from James Joyce, Franz Kafka, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Ernest Hemingway. There was one short story, The Rocket Man by Ray Bradbury, that was an early finalist. But like most of the others, it was a bit of an indictment of a particular brand of fatherhood, one that mercifully and hopefully appears to be on the wane. Then, I stumbled onto this powerful love story that feels to me to be a more authentic expression of what I experienced as I grew into becoming a father. I've edited it for length, and it features a few strong scenes that touch on the challenges of becoming a parent. If that's a sensitive topic for you, you can jump ahead 20 minutes. Walking in Circles by Nikki Baker I can see my own small pink fingers curling around the handle of my baby walker and feel its smooth, round coldness against my inquisitive skin. This is my earliest memory, and it is a true memory, not one of those false recollections stolen from a tatty-edged photograph or a fondly repeated anecdote. I have wondered occasionally why this particular image should be imprinted so clearly on my mind, but then memory is a willful, feral thing. We can't always choose what gets stored or recalled. My walker 
was a rectangular wooden tray on four wheels that held my wooden building blocks, with a tubular metal handle painted blue arching over one end at toddler hand height. I toddled miles with it. For me, walking was always associated with happy memories— Sandy beaches on family holidays to Devon or Dorset, trousers rolled up and coats fastened against the wind, looking back to see whether the waves had stolen our footprints, or walking between my parents through dappled sunlight in the woods near our house, holding their hands and begging them to swing me up off the ground, laughing as my small, welling-toned feet touched the sky. Approaching adulthood... Walking gave me and my friends a good enough reason to escape college at weekends. Four or five of us would cram into my decrepit little car and drive out into the countryside where we'd head off with maps and rucksacks to just walk and talk and breathe fresh air. The conversations we had on those walking trips, the experiences we shared became the building blocks of lasting friendships. I may have been an early walker, but I was a bit of a late developer when it came to girls. They were a whole different species, and I simply had no idea how to interact with them. I was withdrawn and uncomfortable in their presence, unspoken hormonal expectations weighing too heavily to permit fluent intercourse of the verbal kind. "'You don't mind if I bring along a couple of girls this weekend, do you, John?' Dave was a regular member of our little walking group, and four of us had planned a trip for the coming Saturday. I'll bring him in my car, he added, anticipating my objection. Dave had been going out with Leah for nearly three months, long enough for it to be classified by college standards as a serious relationship. He'd mentioned the walk to Leah, and she was keen to come, but didn't want to be the only girl. And that's how Abigail came into my life. Abigail clambered surprisingly gracefully out of Dave's two-door car and self-consciously smiled, greeting at the rest of us while Dave pointed and spoke our names by way of introduction. It seemed the most natural thing in the world to walk beside Abigail that day. There was no effort required for our easy conversation, no awkward silences or unspoken agendas. For the first time in my life, I was relaxed in the company of a female of approximately my own age. Three weeks later, she mentioned that she was leaving to accept a job offer somewhere up north, and then she was gone. I realized with appalling disappointment that we hadn't even kissed. There had been a couple of times when I'd briefly held her hand on the pretext of helping her unnecessarily over a stile or a stream. When I touched Abigail's smooth, cool skin, I had looked to see if she had felt the same tingling significance. Reflected momentarily in her eyes, I thought I saw the sparks generated by the unexpected electricity between us. But the sparks were gone almost as quickly as they came much like Abigail herself. I walked more than ever after that to fill the sudden vacuum caused by her absence. I learned then that walking can be used either to avoid thought or to facilitate it. To avoid thinking, you focus on the steady rhythm of your feet, pushing the unwanted thoughts downwards where they catch in the long grass and stumble over the uneven ground and you'd walk just fast enough to leave them behind. 
To facilitate thinking, you lift the thoughts clear of the weeds and snagging hedgerows where they can swirl unhindered around your head. I mastered both of these techniques after Abigail left. However, emboldened by the knowledge that it was at least possible for me to converse with members of the opposite sex, I did have a few two-dimensional relationships over the next couple of years. And if I had never met Abigail and felt that thrilling, fundamental connection with someone, I might indeed have accepted one of these other relationships as being good enough. The trouble was, having once been so moved by the sweet, soft music of the flute, I couldn't bring myself to make a lasting commitment to the pleasant tooting of the penny whistle. I started work and rented a flat and settled rather uncertainly into life as an adult. I sometimes mourned the passing of the innocent joys of my childhood, being swung by my parents through the woods or leaving footprints along a beach. It felt as though I was wearing a suit of clothes that I had yet to grow into, still only playing at being a grown-up. I wondered whether I would ever really feel that I belonged in this unfamiliar new world of commerce and self-reliance and having to think about what to eat for dinner. One rainy Thursday evening, I was on my way out of the local supermarket when someone called my name. I paused and looked around but couldn't see any familiar faces. This sort of thing happens quite often when your name is John, so I turned back toward the exit. John! The voice was nearer this time, and there was Abigail, brilliant technicolor Abigail in a world I hadn't previously realized was monochrome. She came right up to me, smiling all over. John, it is you. How are you? She leaned in to kiss me on the cheek. I wanted to fling my arms around her, but was severely hampered by the full shopping bag in each hand. As it was, I ended up kissing Abigail clumsily on the side of her nose, whilst simultaneously hitting the back of her knees reasonably hard with a frozen portion of cannelloni. Authentic Italian recipe serves one. Ah, shit. Uh, sorry, Abigail. Wow, it's great to... Um, I mean, how are you? Our reunion wasn't going quite the way it had in my fantasies. I'm good, she said, her eyes twinkling with amusement. Look, uh, are you... Uh, could we get a coffee or something? I was suddenly desperate not to let her vanish again. She peered into my carrier bags. What about your shopping? Things will defrost. I couldn't have cared less about my shopping. But in the end, she walked with me to my flat a couple of streets away, and then it seemed silly to go out in the rain again. We talked as if we'd never been apart. Her job up north had gone really well, but she'd reached the point where she was getting bored, and there were no prospects with that particular company. I dared to hope that if she was considering working back down here, she couldn't be involved with anyone. Later that evening, we opened a bottle of wine and microwaved the cannelloni. Authentic Italian recipe serves one. We got married the following September. Before too long, we managed to save the deposit for a little run-down house. Together, we did it up and sold it to get the deposit we needed for another run-down little house, but in a better area. This one we did up to keep, 
Abigail and I had fun making that house our home. We also had blisters and splinters and occasional disagreements, but all the time we were building a strong foundation of shared memories. Whenever we needed a break from the paint and sawdust, we walked. One day, we climbed to the summit of a hill and were standing among the exposed roots of a wind-carved oak tree while we regained our breath and drank in the views. John, she murmured, I've been having second thoughts about the paint we picked for the spare room. Oh, I said, drawing her close and warm inside the front of my coat. We'd better not go for blue, in case it's a girl. I looked into her face, and she was laughing and crying at the same time, and then so was I, and it was more exhilarating than when my parents used to swing me up to the treetops. Abigail's first miscarriage robbed us of our carefree excitement. The second took away the casual certainty which we had previously taken for granted. We had so many unanswered questions. Most of them remained unspoken because we knew that no one had answers to give. Why was this happening to us? What was going wrong? Whose fault was it? Would we ever be able to have a baby? How many tries was too many? I felt worse for Abigail than for myself because she had to endure the physical experience of the miscarriages as well as the emotional misery. One of the doctors also reminded me that Abby's hormones were on a cruel roller coaster that made things harder for her. Yet when other people focused on her suffering and ignored my own, I wanted to scream selfishly in their sympathetic faces that it was my loss too, my baby too, my dreams that had bled to death again. The third time Abby told me she was pregnant, we were not elated. We were immediately anxious and careful. The weeks inched by in slow procession with no unplanned visits to the hospital. The tenth week came and went, a record for us. And then the eleventh and the twelfth. When Abigail was just over seventeen weeks pregnant, I took her a cup of tea, and she looked up at me with tears in her eyes. My heart stopped, and I sat down and took her hand, instantly concerned, until I saw that her face was alight with happiness. I felt it move, John. I just felt our baby move. It was a few more weeks before I, too, was able to feel the miraculous movement through Abigail's expanding skin. The experience was addictive, and we would lie in bed at night with my hand across her middle, both of us giggling every time an invisible hand or foot pushed against my waiting palm. For us, this was far more entertaining than anything the television had to offer. By now, the spare room was painted in primrose dawn. Do people have full-time jobs naming paint colors? We were reluctant to tempt fate by setting up the room as a nursery, so the cot and other paraphernalia that we had bought or had been given were simply stacked in there. We were due to become parents in just nine weeks' time. At a restless, loose end one Saturday, I got my old baby walker down from the loft. I scrubbed and sanded everything carefully and gave the handle two coats of new blue paint. Azure mist. Then I took the walker upstairs to the spare room 
and dared to imagine the day when my own child would close his or her fingers around the handle and start exploring the world. Abby, did you hear me? I walked into the lounge. It was a Tuesday evening, and I hadn't long been home from work. Abigail was beached on the sofa with her puffy ankles resting on a footstool. She dragged her attention back from wherever it had been, her pale face still wearing the echo of a frown. "'You okay, honey?' I asked, perching beside her. Oh, "'I'm fine,' she forced a too bright smile. "'Probably worrying about nothing. You know me. It's just that the baby's been a bit quiet today.'" Two days later, our brittle dreams were shattered into jagged reality. Tests and a scan had confirmed that our baby had died in Abby's womb. My poor Abigail had to endure an induced labor, knowing that the only reward for her pain and striving would be the awful confirmation that the nightmare was real. I stayed with her, holding her hand, adding my tears to her own, powerless to take away the unthinkable hurt from the person I loved most in the world. We named our daughter Grace. Abby and I found ourselves rooted by grief in the center of a vortex of doctors, bereavement counselors, and well-meaning friends and relatives. Abigail built a wall. I could see it rising slowly around her, almost as clearly as if she had used real bricks. It protected her from the outside world and enabled her to go through the motions of living. But it also shut me out, even though that wasn't her intention. I wanted to smash it down, but I wasn't strong enough. I wanted to breach it, one intangible brick at a time, but she easily repaired such minor damage. And I did not have the courage to venture inside the wall with her for the claustrophobic fear that I might find myself trapped there, unable to return. I walked. There was a circular route of just under three miles from the front door of our house, along quiet residential streets and a footpath to the edge of town, then through a strip of sparse woodland, and finally beside the canal and past some small industrial units to get back home. I wore my grief like a dark shroud and paced out my anger, sorrow, and increasing loneliness. Abby started resenting my daily walks. It was as if she thought I had found an escape route that I wasn't telling her about. I often tried to persuade her to come with me, but she always refused. One day I put on my coat and we ended up having a blazing row. Her anger broke free of her control and lashed me like a stormy sea. I went to the door several times, attempted to retreat to calmer waters, but I was too afraid of coming home and finding the Abigail I loved so much had been washed away. So I stayed. And when the stinging rage ebbed, she was small and frightened, and she let me hold her while she cried. The next day, she came with me on my circular route. At first, we didn't talk much while we walked, but that was fine. She was beside me again, and I knew that her defenses had started to crumble. Over the weeks and months that followed, Abby and I mended slowly, 
one step at a time, walking in circles. If we could rise undivided from the ashes of such a devastating inferno, there was nothing that could threaten us. Well, perhaps only one thing. When Abby told me that she was pregnant again, it was like staring down a deep, dark well. I couldn't face the thought of finding myself back at the bottom. But before we could worry ourselves too much about what we might face further down this road, there were new and immediate obstacles to deal with. Abigail suffered terribly with morning sickness throughout the first three months, whereas she had never been bothered by anything more than occasional queasiness in her previous pregnancies. Then, quite abruptly, she felt better, started grazing on food almost continuously. The weather was getting hotter as her bump started to show. The temperature and the belly raced each other, both increasing rapidly until by early autumn Abigail was in constant discomfort. By the time the weather cooled and the prospect of winter sent the weakening sun scurrying to its bed earlier each day, Abigail's tummy was huge, bigger than I'd ever seen it or imagined it could become. Despite the midwife's assurances that everything was going really well, we fretted more and more as Abby's due date loomed nearer. We couldn't help it, and we started snapping at each other over the most insignificant things. I don't want it to be like this, Abby exclaimed violently one evening, having just yelled at me because we'd run out of milk. I can't keep focusing on what could go wrong. But, Abby, no, John, we have to give this baby a chance. I feel like we're killing it ourselves by just not, not trusting it to live. Her cheeks were wet with tears. Okay, darling, I drew her into my arms and kissed her hair. Okay. Okay. That was when the contractions started. Christopher was born at quarter past four the following afternoon, and he was alive and squirming and gloriously loud. It was the 5th of November. Later that evening... I was awoken from an uncomfortable doze in the ill-designed chair beside Abigail's hospital bed by the popping of fireworks outside. My beautiful wife was still deep in an exhausted sleep, but Christopher's eyes were open when I went to gaze at him in his little transparent box at the end of Abby's bed. He wriggled a bit when I leaned closer. I picked up my son and walked over to the window. We were on the third floor, looking out over the glittering town to the dark hills in the distance. Everywhere, fireworks were blossoming, thrusting their twinkling petals into the night sky, briefly outshining even the stars. It felt to me as if the whole world was celebrating the birth of our baby. I held him in my arms until he fell asleep. As I watched Christopher's small pink fingers curl around the handle of my old baby walker, I suddenly see that all the steps of my life have led me in a huge meandering circle to this very moment. 
and I dare to look ahead to the days when Abigail and I will swing Christopher between us through the woods, and we will make our own footprints in the sand, and we will watch to see where the steps of his life will take him. Hold on to me as we go As we roll down this unfamiliar road Although this world is stringing us along Just know you're not alone Gonna make this place your home Settle down and love be clear Don't pay no mind to the demons They fill you with fear The trouble in might drag you down If you get lost you can always be confession to make. I am a proud papa. I have two grown kids who are both pretty great. Vice is a recent graduate, magna cum laude of UC Berkeley, and Ruby is a brilliant actor and singer. 
You've heard them both on this podcast, and as you know, they're both whip-smart, funny as hell, and are headed into adulthood with heads that are pretty well screwed on, if I do say so myself. I tend to be biased, which is just another word for proud, right? I'm also lucky to have a great relationship with my own dad. He's also really smart and funny. He's handy around the house, and he loves to cook. He's a hunter of ducks, geese, boar, and deer, and therefore his freezer is always stocked with delicious wild game. He's active in his church. He's a true Levite, keeping a keen eye on the finances of the organization. And we enjoy chatting about current events, baseball, recipes, gardening, and grilling. I discovered right before he retired in 2001 that he really loves to sing. So we'll often just sit around and run through a bunch of pop songs when we're together. He loves Andre Botticelli and Ella Fitzgerald, and he'll get weepy if he hears Conte Partio or How High the Moon or even the Star-Spangled Banner if it's a really good arrangement. (laughs) Growing up, many of my best friends didn't really have dads. One buddy's dad returned from a tour of Vietnam with a new wife. Another's dad left their wife for a secretary. A third had a divorced dad that I frequently heard about but never once met. And most of the rest of us had tenuous relationships with our baby boomer dads who were working nine-to-five jobs in an office downtown and who learned from their parents that children should be seen and not heard. It was a bit like having a dad and not having a dad at the same time. In high school and college... My buddies and I talked about this a lot. We'd often head into the wilderness for a week to do some intense hiking, eating, and adventure. It was a time for us to reconnect, to get crazy, and check in as young men trying to make our way in the world. As the years passed and we each found careers, spouses, and started living our adult lives, our time together became less frequent. But my heart holds the counsel of my Arden Park pals and future dads to this day. One great piece of advice I remember came from one of my best friends as we were lying out one night at 10,000 feet, staring up at a blanket of stars and talking about our dads. I think I've figured it out, he said. You gotta date someone for five years before you marry them. Then you need to be married for at least five years before you have kids. That way... There's a better chance that our kids will never have to go through what we did. I took this to heart. I had had a handful of long-term relationships break up after two or three or four years. I wanted to be sure that I was secure enough in myself and secure enough in my relationship before I even thought about adding a kid to the mix. Anne and I only knew each other for two and a half years before we were married, but... I'm pretty convinced we tested each other thoroughly before we tied the knot. And although we both wanted kids, we knew that we weren't ready to have them until six years into our marriage. By then, I was a voice director for the animated series Rugrats, and we had Bat Boy in development in New York, and had a thriving career as a costume designer, and somehow, despite our hectic schedules, we both remained flexible and accommodating enough that we were able to maintain a decent balance between our work and our life together. So we had a kid. 
Six weeks after Vice was born, we three were running out the door in upstate New York to catch a car to a train that took us through Grand Central Station to the Times Square shuttle, which whisked us to 42nd Street, just a short walk from the director's company where Bat Boy was receiving its second workshop. Anne was doing some image work for the show. Baby Vi would sleep backstage or get passed around among cast members or hang with us in the writer's room, also known as the lobby. When we came back home after this trip and settled back into a more relaxed schedule, the now 10-week-old Vice would wake up and appear to wonder where all the people went. A couple years later, Ruby came along, and a few months after she was born, Anne and I were actually in a show together. It was the first incarnation of the 99-cent-only Christmas pageant. I performed a father-daughter tap number with a couple of young girls. Anne played the hoochie mama and got to sing a great song composed by our own John Ballinger while she threw candy into the audience. One night... Our regular babysitter crapped out on us an hour before showtime. No problem, we thought. We're never on stage together, and Vi's old enough to watch the show from the audience. We'll just hand baby Ruby off between numbers, which would have worked out well if our pieces didn't follow each other in the show. That night was Ruby's stage debut as the Hoochie Mama's sidekick, Hoochie Baby. This... It Takes a Village approach became our M.O. We were very lucky to have a family-friendly atmosphere at most of the L.A. theaters where we worked. The Actors Gang, Evidence Room, The Bootleg, and Boston Court, to name a few. We found the Union Square Theater in Manhattan, the Cleveland Playhouse, and numerous venues in England and Spain to be generous and accommodating as well. Anne and I became adept at kid juggling, and we recruited friends and colleagues and neighbors to babysit when our schedules failed to line up. We were blessed to be freelancers with flexible schedules. It allowed both of us to actively parent even as we worked to make a living. When the kids were little, I was bringing in a little bit of money on royalties from Bat Boy. Anne was in huge demand in 99-seat theater, and this afforded us both a nice quantity of time to spend with our kids. I can't speak to the quality of the time we spent together, but the countless hours at the park or the science museum or in the front yard rolling out Play-Doh are times I wouldn't trade for all of the universe. You see, I didn't just want to have a kid. I wanted to be a father, one who showed up. Which means I had to show up for the hard times, too. Vice came home from New York as a one-year-old with a bacterial infection in their lymph nodes that revealed itself as a sizable lump on their neck and a positive test for tuberculosis. Turns out it wasn't TB, but a mycobacterial infection that took nine months of feeding our baby four different antibiotics each day to cure. Vice can't eat yogurt to this day, as that was the preferred method of antibiotic delivery, with an actual and only mildly effective spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. Ruby got all of the diseases. She had hereditary enamel hypoplasia and had to have most of her baby teeth replaced when she was four. 
She had an appendectomy, tonsillectomy, and gallbladderectomy, all between the ages of 9 and 16. She got a recent diagnosis of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and as I write this, she's laid up with her second bout of strep throat this spring. Weiss has had to deal with stress-related seizures that started on the day of their fifth-grade graduation when the end of elementary school and the looming unknown of middle school, plus the epic psychological weight of gender dysphoria, got to be too much for his brain and it just shut down for a bit. This became a regular enough occurrence that we ultimately visited a pediatric neurologist to help them get it under control. But the greatest challenge of my fatherhood came the day I was awakened by a piercing scream of pain from Ruby's bedroom. Anne was out of town on a job, and I was flying solo. I had a morning routine to get the kids up and fed and off to school, and an afternoon routine that covered homework, dinner, family time, and bedtime. That terrifying and excruciating scream was definitely not anything I'd planned for. I leapt out of bed, dialed 911. Ten that seemed like a hundred minutes later, the first paramedic crew I'd meet that day came through the front door. They checked Ruby's vitals, which were stable, declared that it was probably her period, and left. Vice decided to stay home from school, and we called in an appointment for an ultrasound later that afternoon. I kept Ruby near me, and Vice was a great support when I ran out to the drugstore for pain meds and Gatorade. We three headed to the medical imaging center later that day. It was so packed that we couldn't find three chairs together, so I let the kids sit with each other and I took a single chair across the room. A little warm and stuffy in that room, overcrowded with folks just like my kid, folks in exquisite pain and fairly sedated. It was a weird vibe, to be sure, but I settled in and started playing 2048 on my phone. Dad? Ruby's voice from across the room, a little slurry and soft, then more insistent. Dad! I looked up to see people rising from their chairs to clear a space for my eldest child who was rigid and shaking in their seat. I bolted across the room shouting, He's having a seizure! Can someone call 911? The receptionist immediately picked up a phone. The seizure ran its course, and we put a wet towel on Vi's head as he came out of it. You're okay. You're okay. You okay? Help is on the way. Five minutes later, I met my second paramedic crew of the day. As they were prepping to wheel Vice out of the room and off to the hospital, the nurse came into the waiting room and called Ruby's name. Um, you guys were taking them to Providence, right? I asked the paramedics. The hospital was right across the street. Yeah, if that's what you want. Uh, yeah, definitely. You're going to be okay. We'll be right there as soon as we can. A little groggy and slightly scared. Okay. I love you. Love you too. Vi was wheeled out of the waiting room, just as Ruby and I were ushered into an examination room. The doctor found that there was a pretty severe problem with Ruby's gallbladder, and we'd be advised to make some dietary changes until she could have surgery to remove the organ. In the meantime... She suggested we stick with over-the-counter medicines to manage the pain and ease Ruby's digestion. Ruby and I left the doctor's office 
and crossed the street to the hospital where Vi was resting comfortably in the ER. Ruby squeezed into the tiny bed with him. We talked a little about what we might want to have for dinner. Pasta, maybe? Then an early bedtime for all of us after a truly trying day. Last month, we talked about the main job of parenting, which is to keep your kids breathing. The second job, which is just as important, is to show up for all of it. For the recitals, the vacations, the commencements, the school field trips, and for the doubts, the fears, the tears, the illnesses, and the pain. If you had a dad who showed up for you, good for you. Give him a call today and say thank you. If you didn't, think about the people in your life who did show up. Your friends, your teachers, your mentors, the ones who helped guide you to where you are today. And if your dad is no longer with us, find that spot in your heart and your mind where you carry them. Remember the times they showed up for you and be grateful. Maybe you need to forgive them for some of their mistakes. Maybe you can also forgive yourself for some of the mistakes you made along the way too. For our life is full of folks who parent us and we will all be called upon to parent others along the way. The key is just to show up. That's our June. I hope you're proud of who you are, because the rainbow would be missing a hue without you. Here's the who did what. The Rhythm of the Seasons is produced by Ann Kloss Farley. Double Batch Daddy is our house band. You heard their arrangement of Home, and you heard them on John Ballinger's arrangement of Lazing on a Sunny Afternoon. The Seasons of Life featured Milo from Oakland, Gerson from L.A., Brielle from Chicago, and Anjali from Virginia. Charles Dayton designed the soundscape for The Big Question, and I'm your host, Keith Farley. We'll be back in a month or so with another collection of stories, songs, and conversations, all intuitively designed to help you groove with the rhythm of the seasons. Music